good to be with you. I, um, I know that you'll have looked in the uh, chapel uh, service and found that this morning I titled this uh, brief presentation, uh, The Problems with Passion. But I want to say to you that um, having, having pinched a sciatic nerve two days before leaving on a 12-day trip and uh, being fairly heavily medicated with anti-inflammatories. In fact, I asked Gary if he had some of the industrial strength anti-inflammatories that he had been using when he was uh, suffering from an inflammation. Uh, I'm out as of yesterday. So, so um, along with uh, having blown out my knee for the third time in a running injury, uh, I feel more like this should be the problems with pain uh, this morning. Uh, so... Uh, if I uh, wince more than once, she'll know why. It's, it, it kind of is a reflection of, and I'm not sure if, if, if a breakfast cereal is your forte, but it, it's kind of a reflection of the old saying that you know you're getting old when the snap, crackle, and pop you hear in the morning is not your cereal. <laughs> so, In the passage we just read, Paul was nothing if he wasn't enthusiastic. I mean, there's no question that he was full of vigor for the cause that he was about to set out on. He was filled with zeal and a sense of the righteousness of his cause. And it seems clear from the passage that he also had a deep sense of justification for his attitudes and the actions that he was intending to take. What he was about to undertake would, in his mind, adjust once again the landscape of Judaism back towards orthodoxy. There'd been this bubbling up of these uh, radical, unorthodox, misguided, misdirected individuals in this cause called the way, and he was about to fix that. In a word, he was passionate. We hear today more than perhaps ever before that we should follow our heart pursue our passion. Most often this is in respect of our careers perhaps or interpersonal relationships. Maybe some of you are pursuing your passion towards uh, a fellow student that you hope at some point will uh, return those interests. But it's also and very frequently continued as the significant and perhaps most compellingly descriptive uh, word for mission. We need to be passionate for the cause of mission. It's the language of motivation. It's the language of accomplishment. Yet experience suggests that if, if we were to reflect on the human condition, we are incredibly easily deceived by the thoughts, attitudes, and, t- and intentions of our hearts that give birth to these kinds of passions. In fact, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And so we find ourselves sort of looking into our own hearts and motivations and attitudes on occasion and asking questions. And probably as often, if we're honest, struggling to understand what our attitudes and ideas and thoughts and intentions might be and whether or not they're rooted well This leads to situations where it can be incredibly difficult to tell the difference between fruitful passion and in some cases destructive obsession. Passions defined as destructive obsessions are just as likely to destroy life as to bring it. 
not only ours but others, they're just as likely to accomplish purposes for which they're not intending to accomplish and pursuit of those accomplishments in the name of the one who made us. Aristotle had much to say about passion. The term that he used was pathe, the Greek from which we derive words like pathetic, empathy, to feel together. Empathy is a good thing. If we feel together, we bond our hearts and our hearts that might feel a common passion uh, tend to be more compassionate. But there are also other derivatives of pathé that we might take note of. When Cicero sought to translate Aristotle into Latin, he experienced the challenge, in fact, choosing the best word for passion, since pathé can also refer to such things as pathology, a study of that which is dead or dying, and psychopath, someone whose social inclinations are destructive and we might say of an evil nature. When Cicero had completed his work, what emerged from it was an understanding that passions have to be governed or directed, otherwise they have a great likelihood of destroying the individual or others. One of the church's foundational theologians with a very serious passion to engage the dialogue of faith in his era with others that were around him pursuing a very different pathway in their understanding of who they were as human beings in this creation, made this statement. Unbelievers deserve not only to be separated from the church, but also to be exterminated from the world by death. An interesting expression of passion that would appear to have gone a bit awry passionate to engage in the dialogue with others, and yet when the dialogue does not bring the appropriate response, uh, the attitude is quite destructive. The passion produces something that could lead in a very destructive way, and in fact, we know it does. While in Paul's quest, the matter of death is not something he discussed in his quest, in his pursuit of his passion, such things were not uncommon for the religiously unorthodox in his day. In fact, they were altogether too common. But how do such things happen? We, we just want to be passionate for the cause of Christ. We want to pursue it with everything that's in us. We want to respond to the call, the upward call of God in Christ and the Great Commission to go into all the world and make Christians, oh, I'm sorry, disciples of all nations. So let me suggest a couple things that I see in Paul. One of the challenges in, in taming this passion and directing it well is that Paul only went to the people he knew would confirm his diagnosis and prescription. So he goes to the religious leaders, he goes to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the members of the council, uh, the temple priests, and he says, what do you think about this? Do you think this is a good idea? And of course, they have a disposition towards this that affirms him immediately. He says, go for it. Those who crucified Jesus would be most likely to support Paul's intentions, irrespective of, of what we might think of the events surrounding the crucifixion. You know, sometimes we're prone to go to only those people that we know in advance will support what we think we want to do so that we can pursue our passion. As opposed to perhaps there's some counsel of others 
that if we were to pursue that counsel might temper those passions and direct them well and allow them to burn for a longer period of time in an appropriate way. The second thing Paul, I take note of here is that Paul's focused on the future. The past has faded into obscurity already and the only thing he can think of is the eradication of this threat to orthodoxy. And his own training as a Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law perfect, as to the righteousness under the law without fault, his own training would have suggested if he'd read deeper into the intent of God for his own people, he might have seen in the person, work, life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus a different story. If he'd looked into where he and his, and his people had come from, Instead of simply looking at where they were and where they were going, he might have had a better disposition towards the cause that he was actually called to, not the one he got a confirmation from those who would be yes people to him said. The third thing is Paul's emphatic that he's correct. There's an arrogant assertion of certitude. In fact, his statement that we would see in Philippians is probably what he's clinging to here. I know because I am indeed a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I know the law perfectly. I understand it without any need of correction. He's emphatic that he's correct. I know precisely. I'm that way. When when I look into a situation and and I do an analysis of it, I'm easily led to say I'm the only voice that needs to be listened to and I'm correct. Isn't it it something we see around us, not only in our own immediate communities, but but the, the global community today, there are these assertions of certitude rooted in deep passions, passions that are affirmed by only those who will affirm them and not those who might critique them. We're kind of in similar situations oftentimes. Now Paul's post-Damascus Road experience leads him down a pathway toward humility. In fact, the very experience of the Damascus Road, the causation of blindness, sending him, and the reason I included verse 10, sending him to this, this person named Ananias, someone who was converted to the way who was in fact someone he would be seeking out to destroy and who takes him in and begins the lengthy process of his adjustment towards truth and reality by Jesus. Creates this sense of humility. Begins the pathway toward humility. A humility we would read time and again of Paul in his letters to the churches in his reflections on what he sees, whether 1 Corinthians, as he comes down very very harshly on the behavior in the Corinthian church, and then in 2 Corinthians, where he encourages them not to be overwhelmed by their foolishness now that they've confronted it, but to move on. There's this sense of humility that we read in the later Paul that in this passage is clearly not there because Paul's dead certain about what to do and how to do it and what the cause is how to frame it up, and how to act on it. We're not unlike Paul, oftentimes, 
And and, in in the history of the church over the last 30 or 40 years, some of the challenges that have arisen in the church, we have taken positions not unlike Paul. We're certain, we're dead certain about what truth is and about the right course of action. And to guarantee that our certainty is certain, we go and talk to people who are also certain. Just to make sure of our certitude. It's a pretty interesting cycle. And yet sometimes those subaltern voices, those voices that are in the margins of God's kingdom are the voices that speak most truthfully if we're to listen carefully. Those subaltern voices, those ones that are not dominant, that are not articulating the common cause as it has been articulated and owned by us. Those are the voices, perhaps, that we need to listen to, if only to temper our arrogance. If only to temper our arrogance and to cause our passions to be taken under control instead of acted on in destructive and damaging ways. We can tend to blind ourselves with our passion to succeed with our own narrowed and circumscribed ways of thinking and being. We can blind ourselves with our training that limits the horizons to which we expose ourselves. You know, you get into a program of study and you only take the courses that are gonna somehow affirm the things that you want affirmed or teach you the things you only have an interest in, not expand your horizons. The idea of a liberal arts education these days is falling into disuse, disrespect. And yet a liberal arts education, something that widens your horizons, allows you to not fall into the entrapment of Paul. Training can limit our horizons if we're not exposed to wider perspectives. We can blind ourselves with viewpoints forged in the passionate fire of expediency and self-justification. Isn't that what Paul did? We gotta crush this fire out now. We gotta put this out now. And the justification for it is that this will cause, as the parable of Jesus, the leaven will leaven the whole loaf if we're not careful. And everything will go off the rails. The wheels will fall off. And we can blind ourselves with our viewpoints that are forged in that kind of fire of expediency or self-justification. And we can also blind ourselves with our context and culture set as normative. It's called ethnocentrism. If we believe that the cultural paradigm within which we find ourselves and in which we interpret Christian faith and life is normative and therefore all others should embrace it, we can fall victim to acting out of passions that are misdirected, misguided. Finally, we can blind ourselves with our recollection of where we've come from, circumscribed by naivete and preconceptions. You've probably heard me say, if you've been around here any amount of time at all, you've probably heard me say that that the only way to understand where we're at is by looking at where we've come from. And, and, And being open to an understanding of our history that is more than simply wave tops, uh, more than simply the victor's telling of truth, more than simply a singular perspective of our history, but something that is deeper and more rich than that. As I was sharing a bit of time this morning with Peter Keir in his class, uh, uh, discussing history, 
the questions that arose about the nature of Canada's history with respect to First Nations people, which is what Peter was, was looking at with his students, caused me to think once again how easy it is to gloss the challenging parts of our histories and emphasize only what we consider to be the positive parts. And as a consequence, we have this circumscribed view of where we've come from that supports perhaps passions that are misguided. We need to recollect where we've come from with a better and deeper understanding. Micah 6, 8 and Luke 10 can be stabilizing for us in, in this pursuit. Micah, whose reflections we've probably quoted many times, he has showed you, O man and woman, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Now, embedded in this is this idea that that, that we sang about in our songs today, and what a powerful set of, of, of songs this morning. Thank you so much for that. That was, that was absolutely amazing. I loved it. But we sang about it this morning, this sense that God oversees the entirety of God's creation, of which we are a part, in such a way that he acts with mercy and justice, that he himself walks with humility among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Thinking not equality with God a thing to be grasped, he humbles himself. So he he walks in these very characteristics that he invites us to walk in. And he oversees that which he has created in that same attitude as he invites us to take. And then Luke, of course, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now it's interesting the progression between Matthew, Mark, and Luke how each one adds another trait or quality to this statement. And Luke, of course, lastly, love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, we reflect on this and we realize that neighbor is not simply the person next door or the person that we have an affinity toward and that we like, but rather the person that we don't particularly like, that we might not particularly be attracted to that may come at an inconvenient time, that may ask for inconvenient concessions, that may in fact challenge some of our presuppositions. The attitude contained in these two passages can help us mediate passion that is deeply rooted in us so as to prevent it from becoming an unrestrained and damaging obsession. It invites us, both of them invite us to ensure that the same love that framed the sin of the world in the blood of Jesus Christ is what we experience as we engage with the creator of the universe in the ministry of reconciliation. And when Paul is done, when the aftermath of the Damascus experience is over and Paul is set on the trail that God in Christ has intended for him to, to, to take, He engages in this profound ministry of reconciliation, now with a zeal and a passion that we read in the texts that he wrote that is mediated by these very qualities. There are problems with passion. And we'd do well if we were to engage in meaningful, fruitful ministry 
to recognize what those problems are and to act on them in good ways. May God bless us as we do.